Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is John Scalzi, author of the new novel, The Kaiju Preservation Society. John's novel's novel, Red Shirts, won the 2013 Hugo Award for Best Novel. John has also been writing on his personal blog, Whatever, since 1998. Five books have been compiled from the blog, and in 2009, the book Your Hate Mail Will Be Graded, A Decade of Whatever, won the 2009 Hugo Award for the Best Related Book. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Sure. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your new novel, The Kaiju Preservation Society, how would you describe the novel? I would basically say it's about friendship and science and nuclear explosions and very, 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 very large creatures. That's pretty much how I've been uh, talking about it to everybody. Well, that's great. I'm curious, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write the Kaiju Preservation Society? It's kind of interesting because the the story of this of this book is a little bit weird. In 2020, I was writing a completely different novel, and that novel was meant to be a dark and gritty political thriller in space. Uh, and I don't know if you remember 2020, but it was not the year to be writing a dark and gritty political thriller of any sort, much less space. Uh, and I was just struggling with it. Like literally wrote, I wrote about 60,000 words, which sounds impressive, but it was basically the first three chapters over and over and over and over again. And I couldn't get them right. It was like the sentences were great. The paragraphs were fine. The chapters were okay, but none of it hung together. And I kept trying to make this thing work. And uh, through a combination of just, you know, it wasn't working and the world pressing down on me, eventually I had to completely admit defeat on it. And I had to uh, send an email to my editor, Patrick, just going, look, I can't make this work. And Patrick was understanding about it because he'd lived through 2020 as well. And he's <laughs> he was like, it's fine, you know, just because, you know, the book is due in a couple of weeks and we've already done the cover art and everything else. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, but I mean, he got it. I, I just couldn't make this thing work. And, uh, and so it was taken off the schedule. And then I was like, Ugh. so then I went to go take a shower and wondering what I was going to do, because this was the first time I completely had blown a book, right? Um, and while I was standing mm -hmm. there in the shower going, huh, I wonder what I'm going to do now. It was like the back of my brain was like, oh, hey, now that you're not panicking about this book you were never going to write anyway, I've been tootling around with this concept about kaiju, and here it is. And literally the entire story of the Kaiju Preservation Society downloaded into my brain pretty much all at once. And I remember like going, popping out of the shower after I, you know, completely, you know, cleaned myself off, going back to my um, computer and basically typing an email to my editor going, hey, remember that book that I wasn't going to be able to have for you when you, I was supposed to have it for you? Uh, give me six weeks, you'll have a novel. And that was literally it, you know, and, uh, and the Kaiju Preservation Society just wrote itself in five weeks, actually. So I had a week to spare uh, and it was literally all there. So the answer is it came from my subconscious at exactly the right moment for me not to blow my deadline for the very first time in the history of my life. And is that the fastest that you've written a novel before? 
No, it is not. Actually, the fastest I've ever written a novel is two weeks, and that was for The Consuming Fire, which is the middle book in The Interdependency. Um, the story there was that I um, just didn't pay attention to my deadlines, and all of a sudden they were two weeks away. And I was like, oh, crap. Uh, and so I, you know, wrote it in two weeks. Now, to be fair, when I talk about writing it in two weeks, that's basically typing it in two weeks because I've been thinking about it for months before then. But uh, certainly the panic of having basically to write 8,000 words a day in order to uh, get the book in when it was supposed to be in uh, was an experience. And I do not recommend it to anyone ever <laughs> because literally at the end of it, my my hands were twitching, and when I when I sent it, I was like, "I'm too wired to go to sleep right now." And I went to go watch Teen Titans Go. I don't know if you've ever seen Teen Titans Go, uh, but I figured that was about the speed of where my brain was. And after ten minutes, I had to turn it on because it was far too complex for my brain to follow at that particular moment. So, and it took me. Chrissy, my wife, notes it. She says. It took you a week before you could say anything longer than a very simple sentence. It just really fried my brain. My average time for writing a book is about three months, more or less, because I write about 2,000 words a day, and it just adds up in that sense. But six weeks is doable. Two weeks is possible, but I don't recommend it. But three months is kind of my preference. Sure. Well, as I mentioned in the intro, you were a pioneer in personal blogging, and you also wrote for newspapers and uh, other online content. Were you always writing fiction when you were working for newspapers in your early years of blogging? No, not at all. And it's kind of funny to me. There's a there's a little bit of irony uh, in becoming basically at this point a full time novelist. I never really had ambitions to be uh, a novelist. My great ambition as a writer when I was growing up is I wanted to have a newspaper column like my heroes, my heroes being like uh, Mike Royko and Molly Ivins and going back way back when H.L. Mencken and Dorothy Parker, who of course wrote reviews for The New Yorker. Uh, and that was sort of the writing tradition that I had really steeped myself in and I wanted to participate in uh, for the rest of my life. Uh, and now a couple of things happened, which was the first being uh, newspaper uh, had the newspaper world has changed uh, since I was uh, in my 20s in the 1990s. Uh, and then also um, in late uh, in 1997, I was uh, going to go back to my 10th high school reunion. And I knew that all my friends from high school would be asking me, so, hey, have you written a novel yet? Uh, because that's what writers were expected to do. And, and, and in high school, I was the writer kid. So I was like, oh, well, it's time to find out if I can write a novel. Uh, and so I wrote the very first novel I ever wrote, which turned out being Agent to the Stars, which was my second novel published after Old Man's War. And I wrote it pretty much specifically, one, to see if I could uh, write a novel, and two, so that when I went to my reunion, I could say, why, yes, as a matter of fact, I have written a novel. I'm going to send it out to publishers when I get back from the reunion. So... <laughs> and so what was the path to publication for the first book that you had published? Well, that would be Old Man's War. Well, two books. I mean, Old Man's War, the first novel that was published, and then for my very first novel, a book ever published was a book called The Rough Guide to Online Finance. And that book was published because my agent at the time 
uh, basically uh, was talking to the Rough Guides people, uh, and they were saying, we want, we need someone to do an online finance book for us. For us. And he said, hey, I've got just the guy. And he, <laughs> he pitched me, and, he's, and then they were like, that's great. Uh, and then he sent me a phone call where he was like, you've got this book. Can you do it? I'm like, absolutely, I can do it. And then I hung up and I turned to my wife and I was and I went, I guess I should find about find out about online finance. And so I literally researched it for like six weeks before I started writing it. Um, so the moral of that story is always fake it. Um, <laughs> with the novel, and that would be Old Man's War in 2005. So I'd written, so I'd written Agent to the Stars, but I had really written it as a practice novel just to see if I could write a novel. I never did actually get around to submitting it. I just put it up on my website and said to people, hey, if you like it, send me a dollar. Uh, and this was before PayPal or Venmo or anything else like that. So people had to literally mail me a dollar. And uh, <laughs> I actually made the, between like 1999, which is when I put it up, and like 2003 when I told people to stop sending me money for it, uh, I had made about $4,000 for it. So I was like, this works. Um, so Old Man's War was the second book, and I was uh, decided that that was the book that I was going to write to sell it. Uh, and then when I was finished writing it, um, the thought of actually like printing it out and submitting it and, you know, waiting for somebody to reject it so that I could send it out again, it just seemed so annoying um, that I was just like, screw it, I'm going to just gonna put it up on my website again. And uh, in December of 2002, I serialized it a chapter a day. Um, and at the end of it, uh, I uh, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, who's a tour, contacted me because uh, I'd been in email correspondence with him about something else and I had mentioned the novel. Um, and, I, and I told him specifically at the time, don't go read the novel because if I'm going to submit it to you, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Uh, but he didn't listen, and he read it, and he was like, this is great. Do you mind if we publish it? Is that a, Would that be okay with you? And I was like, I guess. And then he was like, all right, well, if we bought one, we might as well buy two. Do you have another book that you have, uh, you know, that you're thinking of writing? And I hadn't had at the time. But of course, I said, why, yes, yes, I do. And I sold the second book, which would eventually become The Android's Dream, on this line, which is um, diplomat solves uh, diplomatic crises through the use of action scenes and snappy dialogue. And they're like, great, we'll take it. Um, and so uh, I basically got a two-book two contract completely serendipitously. And I warned people, you know, it's like this thing that just happened to me, an editor just happening to wander by and reading the thing that I told him not to read because I was going to submit it to him the old-fashioned way. This is never going to happen again. Don't think that this is the new way of doing it. And so, of course, I sold Agents of the Stars exactly the same way, which was another publisher, this being uh, Bill Schaefer at Subterranean Press, wandered by, read that, and was like, can I buy that? And I was like, all right. So, um, yeah. Uh, I my My life as a uh, writer has been filled with incredibly lucky anecdotes. Well, well, what about science fiction appeals to you as a writer? Um, the thing that I like about science fiction as a writer is, one, um, it's a very large umbrella, which means that, uh, you know, the rubric of science fiction encompasses many different sorts of types of writing. Um, so, for example, I wrote the books Lock-In and Head-On, which are basically, um, you know, crime thrillers, but they're in science fiction. And then I wrote Old Man's War series, which is space opera and military science fiction. And then I wrote the uh, Red Shirts, which is metafictional comedy and 
uh, you know, uh, and uh, pop culture observation and science fiction and so on and so forth. There are so many things that you can write about and still have it be science fiction that I've never really felt constrained by my genre. And that's kind of a that's kind of a cool thing. I mean, there are always going to be certain genre constraints, no matter if you're writing science fiction or if you're writing fantasy or if you're writing westerns or you're writing romance or if you're writing crime fiction. There are always certain things that are expected of you within uh, that genre. But science fiction in particular, those constraints are really so lax that uh, almost everything qualifies as science fiction as long as you do a little bit of footwork. And that is the same thing that annoys some purists, uh, you know, about science fiction. And they keep trying to cut it up, you know, like like Star Wars. Well, that's not really science fiction. That's actually just science fantasy, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and the answer is no, no, it is science fiction. It is just also these other things as well. Uh, science fiction is the original yes and genre as opposed to the no but genre if you you know to use a uh improv comedy metaphor there sure well are you working on a new novel now i am always working on a new novel <laughs> i you know that i have a uh i have a 13 book contract with tor and i think i'm on book six maybe book seven i don't know it's it's, it's a long contract man um and uh so basically, there's always a new contract for me to be uh, thinking about in the future. Specifically, I am currently in the process of writing the novel that will hopefully come out next year. And that's been kind of interesting because the novel, uh, like Kaiju, takes place more or less in um, current time. And I'm not going to talk anything else about the plot about it. Uh, sure. I want to be a surprise. But I will say uh, world events as they are transpiring right now certainly have an impact on on what I'm writing. And this is kind of frustrating because like when I wrote like the interdependency or old man's war, those were taking place uh, theoretically hundreds or even thousands of years in the future. And I didn't have to worry about what was going on day to day in the world. Um, and so writing something that's, that's meant to be current um, is really kind of annoying, actually. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, is your writing process the same from novel to novel? Are you someone who sits down and writes an outline prior to diving into the narrative and the writing? Oh, I never write an outline. Um, and I never have. It just seems like so much work. I don't know if you've noticed the theme through my life is I'm actually... <laughs> The world's laziest person, and I have designed my life for uh, on the principle of least effort. Um, and so, doing something like writing a a big outline of all the stuff that I'm going to do in a book, I'm just like, oh, why? Why would you do that? And the answer is, there are other authors who do it because they need it. They actually want to have that outline because it makes it easier for them to write. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The novel in a timely and organized fashion. But that is, that's not me. I mean, I want them to do it. Uh, everybody should write the novels uh, that they write in a manner that is congenial to them. But if if my publishers had said before you, uh, you know, write the book, we need to see a, t- uh, a uh, an outline. What I would do is what I did in, for my high school papers, uh, where I was supposed to have done an outline, which was I'd write the paper and then I would write the outline afterwards. <laughs> uh, so what I end up doing is basically, yeah, it is basically the same. On the days that I'm meant to be writing, uh, I usually write between the hours of 8 or 9 and noon. Um, I have nanny software that keeps me from accessing social media and news sites so that I have the morning where I'm basically the clearest and my brain's working the best um, to write on the novel. And then afternoon... Um, uh, that's when I handle email, where I do all the other stuff that I'm meant to do, all the business stuff that's not related to actual writing. Now, the process by which I write has changed over time. When I was first writing novels, um, I would write them on the weekends because I had a day job. Um, and then so I would write 6,000, 8,000 words across a couple of days and then have a week to be thinking about where I would go next. And that worked for a while until one day it, it didn't. Um, and then I had to basically change my swing, so to speak. And that's when I started saying, you know, I'm going to write daily. Uh, I'm going to write 2,000 words a day or until noon, uh, whichever comes first. And then, you know, that became easier for me to do because it was a smaller amount of writing every day. Uh, but it was still enough to see progress. And uh, it wasn't enough that my brain felt like it was collapsing, which was what was happening before I would write 6,000 words and then. I I wouldn't be able to think for a couple of days, and that's not that's not sustainable. Sure. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? Um, basically, the the writing advice I would give is pretty much the same writing advice I think everybody gives, which is get your butt in a seat and do it. Now, the thing about it is, you know. Uh, you know, every writer will tell you that they meet people along the and and when you do the so what do you do sort of thing when you're meeting them and you say you're a writer and they're like, oh, I would always want to write. I have this great idea and I just never seem to find the time. Um, and basically, you know, the thing is, is if you never seem to find the time, then you will never write because you do actually have to find the time to write. And, you know, I'm a proponent of writing every day simply because I can write every day. This is my job. So that's sort of the luxury that I have. Um and not everybody can write every day, um, but I do think it really helps if you set aside time on a regular basis to write, where you're just going to say, you know, uh, this hour, 
uh, is the same hour that, you know, I always do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, or even just, you know, one day. Um, but it's always this time and, and, and I kind of always do it. And, um, no matter how much or how little you write, any amount that you write gets you towards the goal. So that's the one thing is carve, find the way to carve out a little bit of regular time so that your brain can get used to, oh, this is, you know, just like your brain gets used to like, oh, this is the time that I exercise or, oh, this is the time that I go to work or whatever. It goes, oh, this is the time that I'm running so that when you sit down, you're prepared. The other thing that I would really stress to people, um, and I think this is a thing that happens, especially to novice writers, is they sit down. And they say, you know, now I'm going to write this story. And it's the most important story to me in my life. And they sit down to write it and they don't have the skills to write it the way that they feel it in their brain. And then they get discouraged and they stop. Um, I think everybody needs to recognize that, especially if you're starting off or especially if you're kind of new to a different type of writing, if you've been writing one type of writing, but then you switch over to another, like into fiction, um, that your first efforts are going to suck. And it's not because you're a terrible person or that you don't have skills or that they can't be developed. It's simply because you're just doing it for the first time. I always make the metaphor to uh, someone, you hand them a guitar uh, for the first time and you're like, okay, give me the you know guitar solo from Van Halen's Eruption. And they look at you like, <laughs> that's a, you know, why, how could I do that? And I'm like, exactly, you can't because you don't know how to use it, right? Uh, and by the same token, anything that you do um, is going to take time to actually get good. So I understand that every writer goes through an extensive period of suck, right? Where their writing just isn't as good as they want it to be, or that matches their ambitions. And it's not that they're bad writers. It's simply that it takes you time to learn to, to learn a skill. So you really have to remind people that everything comes with uh, a learning curve and not to get discouraged. And in fact, the great thing about writing when you suck is that you can write all sorts of stuff and not worry about whether it's good or not. It's just you're writing it to try it and to learn things. And so that by the time that you uh, get to the thing, get to the skills where you are ready to write about those things, you're completely comfortable with the idea of different modes of writing, of different ways of writing, and then you can put it into service to the things that you really want to say. So, so A, make time. B, don't worry about the fact that it sucks. And C, in fact, you know, uh, use that time to try all different sorts of things because it doesn't matter. You're just doing it for yourself at that point. That sounds great. I'm curious, what novels have you read recently that you enjoyed? The novels that I've been recommending to people, um, I mean, the thing about my novel writing, reading is it gets curtailed when I'm actually writing because it, I will totally suck up someone else's style like a sponge and it'll come out through my fingers while I'm trying to write. And generally it's a mess. Um, so when I have the downtime, uh, I've been, you know, that's when I do my reading. Um, and the three novels recently that I've been uh, saying to people that I've really enjoyed – um, have been The Actual Star, which is by Monica Byrne, um, The Light from Uncommon Stars, which is by uh, Rika Aoki, uh, and then Goliath by Tochi Onyabayuchi. Um, all three of those novels are really good, and they're all really different, which I think is uh, a, a kind of an important thing, that they're not just all in the same subgenre of, of science uh, fiction. 
And the, you know, the thing that I think is really cool about that is it kind of reflects the diversity of science fiction and fantasy uh, in our world today. It's just so much wider uh, in terms of what's being published uh, by and by various sorts of authors that we didn't necessarily uh, have a lot of representation with before. And now we do. And the stories are so varied and they're so different and, and they're so cool that as a reader, it's fantastic. And as a writer, uh, it, it inspires me to make sure that my own writing, which is very specific and not like there these other authors in their writing, but it, that it performs what it does at the same level um, as these writers are performing at. They're raising my game by just being so awesome. And I want to, you know, be as close to as awesome as they are right now with my own stuff. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels? Uh, they can find me online. I mean, literally just type Scalzi into Google and I am the first <laughs> hundred listings, uh, which is kind of cool. And say it works the same for uh, whatever, which is the name of my blog, because it has been there for 23 years that after you get uh, past the dictionary definitions, um, it's right there to be linked into. Uh, but yeah, I have a blog that has been there for 23 years and I write on that nearly every day. Uh, and I also have a, a feature there called The Big Idea, where other writers come and they talk about their new, newly released books and what's so cool about them. So every day is basically a new book recommendation from the author themselves. Um, and then whatever I'm writing about, uh, I'm on uh, Twitter at, uh, you know, at Scalzi. And again, uh, commenting there constantly. Uh, so if you really want the fire hose that is John Scalzi being uh, performatively active online, those are the two best places to, to find me. I'm there. That's great. <laughs> well, again, we've been speaking with John Scalzi, the best-selling writer of the new novel, The Kaiju Preservation Society. The book is available now, so go buy a copy. And John, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, yeah. No, thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thanks a lot. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of John Scalzi's new novel, The Kaiju Preservation Society, performed by Will Wheaton, courtesy of Audible Studios. Chapter 1 Jamie Gray! Rob Sanders popped his head out of his office door and waved at me, grinning. Come on down. Let's do this thing. I got up from my workstation and grabbed the tablet with my notes, grinning as well. I glanced over to Kenesha Williams, who gave me a quick fist bump. Knock him dead, she said. Stone dead, I said, and walked into the CEO's office. It was time for my performance review, and I'm not going to lie, I was going to crush it. Rob Sanders welcomed me in and motioned me over to his conversation pit, as he likes to call it which was four massive primary-colored beanbags around a low table. The table was one of those ones that had a magnetic bead that dragged around blinding white sand under the glass, making geometric patterns as it did so. Currently, the bead was making a swirly pattern. I picked the red beanbag and sank into it, only a little awkwardly. My tablet briefly flopped out of my hand, and I caught it before it skittered off the beanbag and onto the floor. I looked up at Sanders, who was still standing, and smiled. He smiled back, rolled over a standard desk chair, 
and sat in backward, arms crossed over the back, looking down at me. Oh, I see. CEO power move. Very nice, I thought. I wasn't worried about it. I understood how CEO egos worked, and I was prepared to navigate my way through this one. I was here for my six-month performance evaluation from Rob, and I was going to, as previously stated, knock him dead. Comfortable? Rob asked me. Supremely, I said. As discreetly as possible, I adjusted my center of gravity so I was no longer listing ever so slightly starboard. Good. How long have you been here at Food Mood, Jamie? Six months. And how do you feel about your time here? I'm glad you asked, Rob. I feel really good about it. And in fact, I held up my tablet. I'd like to spend some time in this session talking about how I think we can improve not just the Food Mood app, but our relationships with restaurants, delivery people, and users. It's 2020 now, and the food delivery app space has matured. We really need to go all out to distinguish ourselves if we want to genuinely compete with Grubhub and Uber Eats and all the others here in NYC and beyond. So you think we can improve? Yeah, I do. I attempted to lean forward in the beanbag and succeeded only in driving my ass farther into its recesses. I rolled with it and just pointed to my tablet. So, you've heard about this COVID-19 thing. I have, Rob allowed. I think it's pretty clear we're heading for a lockdown. Here in the city, that means people will be getting food deliveries even more than usual. But it also means that restaurants are going to be pinched because they won't be able to do table service. If Food Mood offered to lower our fees in exchange for exclusive listings and delivery service, we'd both make friends with restaurant owners and get a leg up on the other apps. You want us to lower fees? Yes. Decrease revenues during a possible pandemic? No. See, that's the thing. If we move quickly and lock down, pardon the pun, the popular restaurants, we'll see revenues go up because order traffic will go up. And not just our revenue, our delivery people, deliverators. I shifted in the beanbag. What? Deliverators. That's what we're calling them now. Clever, right? I thought up the term. I thought Neil Stevenson did. Who? He's a writer. He wrote Snow Crash. And that's, what, a Frozen sequel? It's a book, actually. Rob waved his hand dismissively. If it's not Disney, we won't get sued for it. You were saying? Our, uh, deliverators could also see an uptick. We could pay a higher delivery fee to them. Not too much. I saw Rob starting to frown here, just enough to differentiate ourselves from the other apps. In a gig economy, just a little boost goes a long way. We could actually build some loyalty, which would improve service, which would be another differentiator. You want to compete on quality, basically. Yes! I made a pointing gesture, which sank me further into the beanbag. I mean, we're already better than the other apps. We just have to drive the point home. It'll cost us a little more. But it will be worth it, is where you're going with this. I think so. I know, wild, right? But that's the whole point. We'll be where everyone else in the food delivery app space isn't. And by the time they figure out what we're up to, we'll own New York City. For starters. You have bold ideas, Jamie, Rob said. You're not afraid to take risks and move the conversation. I beamed and set down my tablet. Thank you, Rob. I think you're right. I took a risk when I left my doctorate program to come work at Food Mood, you know? My friends at the University of Chicago thought I was nuts to pack up and move out to New York and work for a startup. But it just felt right. 
I think I'm really making a difference in how people order food. I'm glad to hear you say that because the reason we're here is to talk about your future with Food Mood. Where best to place you so you can utilize that passion you so clearly feel. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.